Welcome to Trauma Queen, where we normalize talking about some pretty hard shit. I'm Jiminika Eborn, your certified trauma queen. I've been working with survivors of assault for over a decade. This season, we will be talking about sexual education. We will discuss how we deal with stressors that come up around our work, societal, personal traumas, and growth. What we've learned and how we have to navigate through our daily lives. And like always, the focus will be on our journey to healing and finding support. In each episode, I'll give three new resources directly related to the topics we cover. For years, I've seen survivors portrayed without their voices ever being really heard. This changes now. Let's heal together. Hey y'all, this is a quick content warning to let you know that we may be discussing some pretty hard things, or we may even bring up some pretty intense emotions. If this is affecting you, take a breath, take a walk, skip an episode, It's okay. Do whatever you need to do for you. We will be here whenever you're ready to come back. Support for this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, BetterHelp, and people just like you. If you'd like to contribute to supporting this work, you can do so by clicking the link in the podcast description. You can donate as little as 99 cents per month to keep us going strong. Every penny you send goes right back into making this resource accessible to the people who need it most. And if you want to show off your love for the show, check out our merch on www.traumaqueen.love. That's www.traumaqueen.love. So I am uber, uber excited to have this magical being on the show. Um, one, this is one of my favorite people to just hang out and shoot the shit with in general, because I love her brain, but also because I think she adds so much to the field. So I'm excited and very thankful to have this individual. Can you tell us your name and your pronouns? Sure. My name is Allison Moon and my pronouns are she, her. Lovely. Um, so this season we're talking about sex ed, which is super exciting because, uh, that pays a lot of our bills. Uh, <laughs> and we like to have on a good month, you know, every month is different. Um, and so the first question I kind of ask everyone is why do you think your story and or your perspective needs to be heard? I think I, ch- I'm challenged with that in theory anyway. Um, The idea that my perspective is special or somehow needs to be heard. But Mm -hmm. I definitely have gotten a lot of feedback from people over the past couple of years that that does actually suggest that I need to start speaking more about my experience in sex ed. I think there are reasons for that um, professionally and also personally. I think professionally, uh, there are a lot of misconceptions from outsiders about the industry of sex ed, um, about how you know, about how savvy we are, about how uh, connected we are, about how much money we make, about how <laughs> successful we are. I, yeah. I think that, you know, there's, it's easy to see the glamour of that social media just amplifies. And I think a lot of times people get this wrong idea about what it actually is to be a sex educator and the challenges that one can encounter as a sex educator. Um, and that I think also personally, my perspective is valuable because I, because of sex ed, because my, my business of sex and by, because I'm surrounded in my community with people who are in the sex and relationship industry, I discovered new things about myself and my own history that I've been working through this year. That's been really helpful for me to have savvy professionals that I can just 
call up and be like, hey, I'm dealing with this thing that I never thought I'd have to deal with before. How can, you know, how can I work through it and get some really solid advice? And so I think that there's some pros and some cons, but I think that they're all really valuable to understand from the outside. Yeah. And I, I mean, also just a part of this show is showing how everyone deals with things differently. Um, so like people can find healing in like hearing someone else's story or their education, like finding people that look like them or, you know, identify in similar ways. Um, and like talking about like becoming a sex, like a sex educator, what does being a sex educator mean to you? Huh? Um, I think for me, it means being a role model in some ways, uh, which has its own challenges too, obviously. But that in in the way I do sex education, the personal is very much the professional and is very much the political. And I don't see these divisions between private life and professional life that maybe some industries prize. Right. And I think that creates a lot of challenges. Um, for instance, you know, it creates challenges in that the the rules of interacting with our peers are is different in sex education than it is in maybe, let's say, academia or in the business world. And I think that's a really interesting challenge. So, yeah, so I think there's this level of, yeah, how kind of the professional and the personal all do interact in this very nuanced way. And I think also a huge part of my job is just giving people permission to not know the answers to things and not feel bad about that. I think a huge part of our job is listening to people admit their own blind spots and admit their own lack of education and oftentimes that that lack of knowledge is associated with shame and regret and anger and frustration and disgust and all these really hard negative emotions that people are grappling with and then of course that's all within the realm of sex and then that's within the realm of relationships and intimacy and so oftentimes we have to hold space for people's learning curves and people's Mm -hmm emotional challenges associated with their lack of knowledge. And I think to me, that's a very, I don't like to use this word necessarily very cavalier, but it does feel like a very sacred duty. It feels like my job is to hold a space of respect and appreciation for people's learning curves. Yeah. And that to me is, is hugely validating and hugely important. And when I see people in the sex ed world not hold space that way, it makes me very upset because I think it, that is actually the most important thing that we can do. Is let is meet people where they're at, yeah. not try and get them on board with our agenda. And that's a really challenging thing to do when we believe so thoroughly that we know the right <laughs> yeah. answers. We do. I mean, but also we're human and we're still learning and figuring shit out every other day like everyone else. And like you said, like people sometimes put us on this pedestal, right? Like this higher, like, well, you should know everything. And it's like, should I though? Like I know a lot, but everything. Right. And, and be good at everything and do everything, I think, especially in the kind of more autodidact side of the sex education community. So not necessarily the people who are working in, ther- in therapeutic uh, environments or in hospital settings or in medical mm-hmm. establishments, but really people who, who just really were interested in this information, learned as much as we could. Maybe we got some advanced degrees, but maybe we didn't. There is this preconceived notion that because we're so interested in sex, we do everything and we like everything. And lies. Uh, th- I, complete lies. <laughs> and I think that that's like that's a huge amount of misinformation because but it also I think it, it does damage to our industry because I think it makes people scared to talk to us, frankly, about their lack of interest in things or their disgust of certain sexual acts or their fear of certain things. 
And I think, <clears throat> pardon me. And I think that that's a, that's also gets in our way because we aren't able to, again, meet people where they're at. If people are frightened by our reputations or frightened by their ideas mm. of what we're doing in our personal lives. And so it's important for people to realize that there are sex educators who are monogamous. There are sex educators who are asexual, who are, uh, you know, vanilla, who, who are into all sorts of different things and not into all sorts of things. And that you can find people to talk to who will respect your own discomfort or your own comfort levels where you're at. Yeah, we're not all freaky and kinky. I mean, a lot of us are, but... <laughs> We are not all that way, which is great, though. I think it allows for us to be able to support so many different types of individuals, um, because if not, then, you know, who else is doing it or reading like back alley books or something? I don't know. It gets mm -hmm. weird. I, I think there's a lot of value in knowing your peers and again, not seeing our peers as competition, but as collaborators, because then I can say like, oh, actually, I don't have a really strong background in trauma. But, you know, reach out to my friend, Jiminika. She's great at this stuff. And being able to refer people based on what our specialties are and knowing the specialties of people that we love and trust, I think is incredibly valuable. And when we see each other as collaborators, it's easier for us to do that. It's easy for us to refer people. When we see everybody as competition, then it becomes we're at this issue, we're not serving anyone. So when did you start to realize how important sex ed was? I think my story is very similar to a lot of, of the autodidact kind of sex educators in that I was raised by parents who really wanted me to have the right information. And so I became the little beacon of education at the age appropriate levels throughout as a, you know in, in school. So in kindergarten I was teaching all of my friends in Catholic school the words scrotum and vulva because <laughs> you were my dad normal. was a nurse. <laughs> No, I guess not. But, <laughs> and that's the thing. I mean, a lot of the sex educators aren't normal. And I think that's where a lot of we get, we get into trouble a lot of times because there's this deconstruction of what's normal. Um, so I think, uh, but yeah, my dad was a nurse. And so it was really important for him to make sure that my sister and I knew all the right words for things and knew how our bodies worked. And I was, I, I can't imagine, you know, growing up in an environment where I wasn't given those gifts. And right. so as I, be as I grew up, I, be I just was curious. I was interested and I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of the shame that a lot of my peers did because even though it wasn't something that like, you know, we, my parents weren't hippies by any means, there was a certain <laughs> amount of comfort with discussing just bodies. Um, yeah. And so I became, you know, the girl in middle school teaching my friends how to masturbate and and you know just talking about these things without shame and yeah. uh, as I got older I realized that that actually you know I kind of assumed that once we all became adults we'd all have all the knowledge we needed around sex and then once I entered the dating world as a 20-something I realized that actually no people still really need this education and so I just kept on being that friend that people reached out to for fact-based shame-free education around sexuality and then I realized that there was actually a potential for me to do this for a living and teach workshops and write books and reach people that aren't my friends, reach people that didn't know I existed to be yeah. able to try and deliver the same stuff that I gave to my friends to strangers. That's wild. Like, I, I know I used to like read all the books and like talk to people. And I think that's where I found like, oh, I can just talk and say things, but actually like people listen. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I should make sure I'm saying the right things. And I, you mm -hmm. brought this up kind of earlier, like, when it's kind of like, for me, I always say like, it's a privilege because I, again, I do work with such sensitive topics, but it's such a privilege that people trust us mm -hmm. to like teach them these things. 
Yes, and absolutely. I, and I think, again, like you were saying, some people are really reckless about it, and mm-hmm. we may get to that. Um, <laughs> we, surprise. No. Um, I so, have my cup of tea right here. Oh, look at you. Prepared. See, that's what it <laughs> I just had water. Mm. Um, so, I mean, this kind of also brings me to my next, like, kind of, kind of diving into the Alice and Moon brain is like, how did you actually get started into this work? And like, do you think um, you have like a specific focus in sex ed? And if so, like, how did you figure that out as well? Sure. Um, I think that my focus really came from, again, meeting a need that I just saw no community for, which was queer women. Yeah. Uh, I was shocked as I started sleeping with women. I, I was bisexual from a young age. I knew that about myself. Uh, but I took for granted, like I think a lot of women do, that, you know, we all have the same parts. So how different can it really be? Yeah. And then I started sleeping with women and realizing the diversity of our <laughs> bodies and the way we like to be touched and the ways yeah. things we like to think about and the things we like partners to tell us while we're having sex, all these different things that are so nuanced and so individuated. And I kind of fell in love with that idea of just how much diversity could be in bodies that theoretically all have similar or the same parts. And so I got really excited about talking to other women about loving and having sex with women. And so the first workshop I ever taught was called Girl Sex 101. And it was at Burning Man. And it was at Camp Beaverton for Wayward Girls, which is the uh, camp for queer women. And it was in this dusty dome with (laughs) a couple dozen women in it. It was a a class only for women. And we got um, kicked out of our space because there was a giant dust storm and people needed to use the dome. And so I got about 10 minutes into my presentation, and then we had to cancel it. And then the next day, we decided to do kind of like a pickup session. And that day, it was like only like seven people showed up. And instead of me lecturing to a dome full of people, it was us sitting in a circle talking about our bodies, talking about the first time we had sex with a woman, talking about our gender identities and our pleasure and our orgasms. And it became this really beautiful, like, sharing circle. That sounds really sweet. <laughs> it, was, it was shockingly special. And I, I wouldn't have had that opportunity had it, we not had the first workshop kind of get, you know, dusted out. And so it was so nice to be able to have those moments. That, that, that session actually began my, my, friend, my very good friendship with Jiz Lee because Jiz Lee was oh, there. And, t- and educated us a b- bunch about different things around, you know, latex and al- allergies. And it was just really great stuff. And um, and it was just so intimate. And I realized the power of being able to talk to other queer women about our sex lives because there was just really nothing, as far as I could tell, in the market for us. Because I think a lot of people have the same assumptions that I did, which is that yeah. you know, got all the same parts. You like them being touched the same way. You let go and let God. You're fine. Right. <laughs> um, whereas that's not the case. And so that kind of set me on my trajectory. And then I started teaching workshops around like, you know, strap on sex and more techniques. Um, my partner, Reed Mahalko, is a sex educator and well, as well, and we have an open relationship. So we started teaching workshops about polyamory and non-monogamy. And um, I started teaching workshops about erotica. And now I teach a little bit around um, you know, professional skills for sex educators, like writing book proposals and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the, but that Girl Sex 101, this itty bitty workshop at Burning Man was really the thing that blew got me up, going. And it blew up. <laughs> it did. It did. <laughs> it blew up. I mean, that's dope, though, to be able to. And I think. I think that's beautiful to note, like, you don't have to, like, jump into, like, big things. Like, it starts small, and then it grows. So, like, 
you like I know when other people are like, well, how did you get into this field? Did you just start teaching? Hell no. No, I did not just start teaching and speaking at schools. Like you got to build up to this. It's like building a muscle. Oh, yeah. This overnight success story is such so false. I mean, I've been doing this for 11 years. Um, and so and I know a lot of my peers have been doing it for much longer. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you you're the glamour again, the social media machine that makes us all look like we're just teaching in giant arenas all the time is just not true. And again, not very valuable compared to the one on one conversations I have with people. Yeah. Or the, you know, the, I'm, I'm at a book signing and I have somebody who just needs to bend my ear for 10 minutes. And that's far more valuable than the, you know, th thousands of Instagram likes on this picture of me with a dildo. You know, I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's those conversations that are really valuable and actually, I think, end up changing the world for better. I, I totally agree because social media will end. And what is the saying? Like people always remember how you treated them. And mm. I think that's so important. Like, People will send me messages like, you you actually like stopped and talked to me. And I'd be like, did I? Did I? Well, I'm glad I did that. Like, I don't remember all the things, right? Like, we meet so right. many different people and have so many conversations. But as long as what you're doing, it has so much like, I know one of, your, one of the words you always use is integrity. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. like having the integrity atta attached to like everything that you're doing, it mm -hmm. shows up over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's Beautiful. Well, now that we've talked fun things, you ready? <laughs> sure. You warm me up. <laughs> well, lube and consent. Hello. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, and so, like, there's there's all these cool things about sex ed and like learning, and you continue to learn and all these things. But like, where are the problems? Like, what do you think we need to continue working on? Or like. What have you ever had to take a stand for, like for yourself within working in sex ed? That's a mm. two-part question. Yeah, that's a again really hard to answer. Um, I think that I can speak to my own personal experiences. Yeah, <coughs> pardon me again. Of uh, where I think sex ed needs to be better. Um, and again, like this isn't necessarily all-encompassing. This is just really my own very limited perspective. Uh, I think that there is, and again, I kind of touched on this before, there is this level of haughtiness that happens, this level of, of satisfaction with one's own knowledge base and mm -hmm. settling into that. And I think that that frustrates me because, again, it, 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 it flies in the face of what I think sex education is supposed to do, which is grapple with the nuance of sex keep deconstructing assumptions that we make about sex um be willing to be wrong about some of our notions that we've had about sex yeah be willing to have very scary complicated conversations with ourselves and people about sex i think that the more we get i think that, that a lot of professionals in our industry get calcified in their belief system and stop being curious Ooh. about other people's experiences and again about the complexity yeah and i realize that part of this is that as educators we're front-facing we're talking to the quote-unquote muggles we're talking to people who might not have much of a sexual education at all and so we're trying to take care of them with the largest paintbrushes we can we're trying to give them all the best stuff Ooh. for the 15 minutes that they might be in front of us so it becomes conversations of, 
enthusiastic consent is required and uh, never do this and always do this and don't ever use toys with phthalites and all these <laughs> different like talking points, right? Yeah. Because they're sound bites. And if we need to help a lot of people, sound bites can travel the farthest. But that's not how sex works. Nope. And sex is so inextricably linked to gender and race and class and education and nationality and religion and all these different things. I mean, sex is part of intersectionality. You cannot remove sex and still talk about holistic understanding of humanity and how different oppressions interact. Yeah. And so when we believe that we know the right answer to help the most people, and we stop listening to the actual problems that people are presenting to us, we become dangerous. We, we become beacons of misinformation or of, of too generalized information. And that really concerns me because I, I think we can actually harm people when we, when we talk from that perspective. Um, and when we believe that we are better than everyone else because we have access to this information. I am very concerned with the way I see people react from a place that lacks compassion. Um, and this is also my own perspective on life. I tend to be a very much wait and see kind of person. I'm going to take in all the facts. I'm going to read as much as I can. I'm going to analyze and I'm going to sit with my own feelings about things. And I'm going to, I'm going to notice my feelings and I'm going to feel my feelings. And if I need to react later, I may, but usually I won't. But I think that sex education is just as uh, complicit in this flattening of discourse as any other industry is online, where we see and we react and we perform. And we don't actually give ourselves time to think about how we feel about things, sit with our feelings, and dissect the complexity. Instead, we, we fall victim to the same kinds of infighting and the same kinds of um, side choosing and the same kind of flattened rhetoric of sameness and of, of labeling that I think anyone else does. And that to me is, it, it has threatened my own, um, my own faith in this industry and also in my community. As yeah. um, in to such a degree that I'm actually finding myself really wondering what my place is in this industry, um, because if we can't come from a place of compassion for really complex, frightening things, I think we are we are losing people, mm. and that makes me frightened, and that makes me want to isolate, and it makes me want to just write books alone. <laughs> And publish those books and never go out and never teach workshops and never interact with my peers because I just don't know if I feel like I can trust them to be as compassionate as I think we need to be constantly. We need to be, we need to be beacons of compassion and oftentimes we are not and that concerns me. And I, do you think it's also because there's so much, let me see, like there's so much pressure put upon like us to know all the things that when people just kind of throw it away versus being like, oh, you're human, it's like, no, you should know better. Does that make sense? Totally. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, again, like, so for a lot of us who are autodidacts, I keep on saying this, using this word, but for a lot of us who got into this industry just because we liked talking about it and we don't have advanced degrees and we don't have 
certifications in some cases. Uh, we got into this because we were the know-it-alls. We were the kids mm -hmm. that people came to with their questions. And we are good at being know-it-alls. And I think that the, the curse of the know-it-all, and I say this as very clearly <laughs> one, of, one of those myself, is we can feel frightened when we don't know the answer to something. And now there are respectful ways of handling this. And I've certainly gotten very good at this in workshops when people ask me questions that I don't know the answer to. I do not fib. Um, Megan Andy, you actually taught me that. She's a sex educator as well. And she talked about how her, one of her values that she states at the beginning of every one of her workshops is, I will not fib. And I like the word fib there because I think lying has a lot of chargedness. But fib, fibbing happens often when, we, when we're just scrambling for something, right? And so... Yeah, I think a lot of us do have this, this pressure. We feel this pressure to be right. And again, and again, social media is this amazing compounding thing because the most soundbitey your tweet, the most concise and lacking nuance. And often if you, if you can add rage to that, if you can add anger at any of the, the isms that we're allowed to, to be angry at, then you have this perfect little chunk of, of, uh, lacking nuance information mm -hmm. that we get the most likes and retweets for. And yeah. so we get this feedback loop of say something in broad swaths that is contains rage and, and uh, generalizations, and then watch it fly. And it feels really good because that's how social media is, is, is developed to affect our neurology. And so the people who are saying, hey, actually, hold on, or hey, can we, this is a longer conversation, or we need to have a little bit more discourse on this those people get ignored those people don't have the the opportunities to spread their their words as far and i think that's a huge problem too and there's this reward system for people who react the fastest for who react the strongest for who, those who react with the most strong emotion um and the people who are saying hey actually this is a much more complex conversation or hey actually there's there's new studies out recently that we actually need to take into account if we're going to talk about this those people do not get that same reward system and they are not listened to with the same uh mass and i think that's a, a real scary thing too we're recording this season during the month of april which is also sexual assault awareness month I wanted to do something special for survivors this year, and upon speaking with Candace, one of the co-creators of the Kink Kit, I was really moved by the way that they allow people to connect with different levels of their sexuality. I curated every single thing in this kit. We really wanted to create a healing experience, and I couldn't have asked for a better partnership. This box was created to support survivors and their partners to find other ways to connect. This box will allow you and your partner to develop mindfulness connection around your sexual partnership, creating pleasure-positive rituals and loving communication strategies, all while having fun. There's a lot of shame around survivors having pleasure. Let's change that narrative today. You can get details on the kit, the games included, and the techniques you'll pick up, and more by visiting thekinkkit.com backslash queen. That's T-H-E-K-I-N-K-K-I-T dot C-O-M backslash Q-U-E-E-N. No, and, and they're like, well, you're not telling me the fun stuff. Just tell me the fun stuff. And you're like, yes, we will get to the fun stuff, but let's talk about reality first. <laughs> like people don't necessarily want to hear all of that. Right. It's actually making me think of um, Stoya, who is a, a porn performer and a really fabulous, smart person, 
uh, wrote, I think this was years ago, wrote this like ten, Stoya's hot tap 10 sex tips, right? And I think a lot of people came to it being like, yeah, Stoya, this hot porn star who's going to tell me how to like give the best blowjob. And her <laughs> tips were like, you know, uh, food and food can cause yeast infections. So maybe consider not using food on genitals. Um, communication is really important. Uh, eye contact's really helpful. Like just this, this like actual sex tips, like actual genuine sex tips that weren't about porn performance, but they were actually about connection and intimacy between two people. And I see that as kind of the, th the same, from the same philosophy, this like, we, we, because sex is such a bizarre, complex topic in our, in our culture, we have this uh, need to kind of make it titillating all the time, as opposed to <laughs> talking about the realism of bodies yeah. in space and, and emotions and egos in space and how hard that can get. I'm at a place now in my career where I'm far more interested in talking about the, the spiritual aspects, the emotional aspects, the psychological aspects of intimacy than I am about how to give a, a, a porn star a great blowjob. Welcome to And my again, life. that's, yeah, exactly. And I think that's what, I mean, you do that really beautifully. I think the people that I'm most excited about in the sex ed industry are doing that far more. Um, and I think that that's definitely where I think that the discourse needs to go is to acknowledge that we're all just sentient meat sacks with a lot of feelings that we're just trying to find each other and we're trying to find opportunities to connect and that's the meaty stuff that's the scary stuff that's the interesting stuff not the you know put an altoid in your mouth and go down on them you know <laughs> that just makes me laugh i don't know why because it's so true you're like oh it's cheesy but people love mm. the cheese right but it's like yeah but let me really help you like and this kind of like one of the questions I was going to ask you is, do you think that there's a connection between therapy and sex ed? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I mean, I got I mean, so I started doing therapy for the first time in my life in December. Yay. And so, yeah, and I'm uh, it was it has been hugely beneficial. Um, I'm now like a little bit of an evangelist where I'm like. I'm, it's so funny. Like, and I, I didn't have necessarily um, therapy aversion. I just never thought I needed it. <laughs> That's cute. Well, yeah. And I'm I mean, like, everyone should have therapy. We all have trauma. <laughs> well, which is that? I'm like, for, um, until if you'd asked me last year, or no, not last year. If you'd asked me two years ago, I would have told you I have no trauma. I really would have. Um, and I believe that. Uh, mostly because, again, in this beautiful world of social media, but also in this beautiful world of sex ed, we see and hear so many intense, horrific stories. We hold yeah. space. I mean, you know this better than anyone I know. You hold space for so many people's trauma. Put and in you have to, Yeah, exactly. And you have to, but you have to create boundaries and you have to create space for your own self because that's psychically exhausting. Um, so I, I would always compare my own experiences of discomfort or relationship drama with you know, these horrible stories. And so I always consider, and again, because I have so much privilege, I'm white, I'm able-bodied, I'm cis, I'm, I'm from a healthy, loving family. All of, I've got so many stacked privileges that it's often very much the case that I will ignore my own agonies because they don't, they don't stack up, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so basically my experience of going to therapy as a person who's been in this industry for so long was, was really wonderful for me in some ways it was also raised some interesting challenges i definitely knew like how to shop for a therapist better than maybe some of some people did because i was like hey like i actually had this little um 
again, soundbite, where I, I, I think I saw like four or five therapists. I was, you know, like, it's like dating, basically, at the beginning. It You're is. Like speed dating with therapists, yeah. And so I would say to everybody, um, I'm polyamorous, I'm kinky, and I'm queer. And none of those are the problem. Because I need to have a therapist who could ha hold space for me talking about DS experiences in the bedroom or, you know, me being with women or me being with multiple partners and how my girlfriend is handling my situation with my primary partner. And I need to be able to do that in a judgment-free zone. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it behooves therapists to have strong grasp of sex education. So I think sex education and therapy are inextricably linked for that reason. I think it is a mistake for therapists to treat sex as something other or something separate from the psyche. Um, but it's also really important because I think for us to be able to articulate what's wrong or what's going on, it's really helpful for us to have a knowledge of our own bodies and how yeah. bodies interact with one another. Um, for, so for, the re the, for instance, like my, my big clarion call to going to therapy was that I had a panic attack in bed with a, with a new person. And at the time, I kind of dismissed it as being um, like I just had a lot of sexual energy because I hadn't really, you know, we hadn't gotten to some sort of conclusion with the sex, right? So I was like, oh, I'm just really horny. I'm really excited. I'm really nervous. I'm feeling all these really intense feelings for this person. I'm really excited about that. And I'm, I'm now just worked up. But then when the worked upness became, I actually can't breathe. <laughs> I actually can't catch my breath. I actually can't calm down. I'm actually feeling like I don't have both hands on the wheel anymore. I, then I was like, oh, this is panic attack. And so I think it was really helpful for me to have this, the knowledge of my own body and my own sexuality such that I could get to a place where I understood what was happening. And then again, when I was ready to go to a therapist and say, like, this is what happened. This is, this is how I got triggered. This is what the trigger triggered in me from 20 years ago. And so it was able, I had an articulation that a lot of people might not have because I have so much sex education in my, in mm -hmm. my brain. But I was able to say, like, this is what happened to my body. This is the kind of pleasure that I was feeling. This is the pleasure that mirrored my experience with trauma 20 years ago. Um, and it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that I'm, I'm over it. But right. it means that my turnaround time was shorter than maybe somebody else's. Because I could recognize what was happening quicker, and then I could articulate what went wrong quicker, and then I was able to get help that I needed quicker than maybe if I didn't have this knowledge of my body and my pleasure and what was okay and what wasn't. That I mean that totally makes sense. Um, I also think like I have because I you know I partially I not partially I went to school to be a therapist and then I was like fuck this I'm out. Um, and then like because there was nothing like of a real connection for me that made sense for me like working with trauma and working with sex ed, like sometimes people need a hug, right? Like sometimes people just right. need to like sit down and like share space. You can't always do that in a therapy world. But like, right. I'm so glad we exist and they exist because we can work together to support individuals in such a magical way when it's done right. right. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of room, again, like not every therapist has to be a sex educator. Um, but I think that there's, again, our culture kind of dismisses sex as as a really big part of our lives. I mean, again, we, we, I always cite that medical school uh, statistics that like, you know, most doctors who graduate from the programs have like less than 10 hours of sex ed, yeah. less than 10 hours of sexual health. It's so and weird. So, you know, these, yeah, these are the people that we're trusting with our bodies. So if you go to your doctor with pelvic pain, they might not know what's going on. And so being able to work in concert with one another, being able to, I mean, obviously, again, 
continue learning about bodies as much as possible and minds as much as possible, but also feel confident referring people to other people. And this goes just as much for therapists and doctors as it does for sex educators. Knowing who to, to knowing who in your community you can send somebody to yeah. when they need something. Because we can't do it all. And we're not all Correct. fucking like perfect at all the things. Like we have a jam. Like I'm like, trauma's my jam. People cringe. I'm like, it's my favorite. But... <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, hey, I can tell you about blowjobs, but that's not my jam. But here's Hunter, who is lo- who is great at this and can tell you all the things. And that's mm-hmm. it's also having like confidence in yourself to be like, this isn't my jam. Like, let me give you someone. And it's also like a gift. Like, let me give you someone that can really do you justice. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm. absolutely mm. Mm. so so we're gonna we're gonna come back to good things i promise i promise okay um <laughs> do you think you've ever struggled financially because you chose this job <laughs> yeah <laughs> duh. like i mean I, and then this was a big issue um again last year so just really quickly like my partner was going through a restorative justice process at, um that meant that he stepped away from teaching and again we're both sex educators and there was this weird lie going around that people were repeating that we were somehow like financially really well off. And I, I, I was so angry <laughs> and so disgusted by that lie because A, nobody bothered to verify whether it was true or not. And the people who know us know that we generally live month to month. Like I, we are both entrepreneurs and we are both running our own businesses and we are both struggling. And we we struggle because we love the work, but yeah. there have been times when I have been very worried about our our monthly bills um, before Reed stopped working. But now, like as well as when we were working, we lived with roommates up until two years ago as adults. It's true. <laughs> you know, it's like, true. I was there. I um, saw it. Yeah, you've you've seen the roommate situation. Yeah, and so I. I this is one of the things, the myths that I, I'm really worried. Like, there are people making money in sex education. I could probably count them on one, maybe two hands. That's like people generous. who are actually making real, real money. <laughs> yeah, real money. Uh, yeah, maybe one hand. And th- we all know their names because they're also on like C-SPAN, right? Like they're the the Dan Savages who are getting, you know, p- flown places to speak when a, a sex story breaks. Uh, the most of us, we do not. We live month to month. We have side hustles. We have multiple side hustles. Um, I've been very lucky. Like, and, the, and this is the thing, like Reed and I don't have children. We have a very low overhead. So when people are like, oh, you were able to support yourself off of sales for Girl Sex 101. I'm like, yeah, because I was able to live off of $1,200 a month. But like people with kids can't do that. People who live in major cities can't do that. Like it's... It was, and that, and $1,200 is a good month, right? Like, I'm able to live very <laughs> yeah. cheaply because I have, again, a certain amount of privilege and a certain amount of, like, lack of needs around, like, medical care and prescription drugs and mm-hmm. children's school uniforms. And so when they see, when you, people see us people living comfortably or traveling, they're not seeing the hustle. Um, and I think that that's hugely damaging because again i think it creates this this myth of sex ed as being some sort of payday which it really is not it's, it's a not lie. even close it's a we lie don't do it to be ri- we literally don't be like how can i be rich i'm gonna teach sex ed that was never my thought process correct yeah yeah and I yeah yeah i, I mean there and that's the thing like i had i i have had uh fulfilling paydays before from 
like day jobs. And I left yep. those day jobs to yep. focus on sex ed. Um, but I have a side hustle now and I, I'm working a lot and I do a lot of copy at, copywriting and all these things that take me away from sex ed mm -hmm. um, just to survive. And yeah. I think it's I think it's really important for people to know that this is this is the hustle. And then again, when you see those people who've succeeded, uh, those people often put in years and years where you had no idea who the hell they were. And they were the ones starving. I mean, again, it's like the overnight success story. Like, there are very few actors, A-list actors, who were overnight successes. They were making crappy movies for years and years and years. They were in you that crappy play. You just didn't know play. about them. You just didn't know about them, exactly. <laughs> and so it's like, it's the same thing with any sort of industry. You're, you're paying your dues and you're working your tail off just to make rent. And maybe you might find success, but a lot of us won't. A lot of us will live month to month and we'll, then we might give up and find something that actually pays so that we can, can have the children or can buy the house or can have the life that we want to have. But a lot of us, we're never going to get there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Jesus, that was really <laughs> I loved it. It was fucking honest. I'm here for it because it's so true. Um, mm. So we're, we're going to start getting positive again. Get ready to bring it back mm. up. We're coming back uphill. Cool. Um, have you found any healing within sex ed? Oh. I think that my, my optimism, and I do have, still have optimism, uh, despite this really frightening time that we're all collectively living through. Mm -hmm. um, my optimism does come from my, not my industry. I was about to say my industry, and that is a lie. Uh, my <laughs> optimism... <laughs> comes from the people that I meet and the people who are invested in learning. Um, I have, I'm one of the sex educators that I know that isn't consistently angry at men. Um, because cool. the men who come to my workshops, they give a shit. They give a, they give a lot of shit. They, they, they want to figure out what they weren't taught. And they want to dismantle the patriarchy within their own hearts and minds. They want to be good as men mm. and i am always so gratified to see those men come and be so sensitive and so frightened because they've had sex educators tell them that they are just tools of the patriarchy or tell them that they're predators they've had that happen and so for me to be able to speak to these men and to be able to meet them where they're at gives me hope um and it's the same with any sort of healing you know, I, when I see people who are taking their healing into their own hands, who are speaking to themselves with compassion, because it's one thing to talk to other people with compassion. It's a whole other different thing to talk to yourself with compassion. And I'm learning how to do that now. But when I see people on their own journey who come to my classes because they are taking care of themselves, they're because they're being gentle with themselves, because they're giving themselves permission to not know things, I'm always edified by that. Mm. And then again, just for my own personal healing, I am so grateful to have been able to have a really scary realization about an abusive relationship that I had never really thought of as abusive 20 years ago, and to have a community surrounding me that said, yeah, that was real. Yeah, you're okay. Yeah, he's not a villain either. You both brought things to the table. You both were harmed in different ways. All this stuff, and to be able to help me deconstruct that in community, in friendship, mm -hmm. um, with people who do this for a living, that has been 
incredibly healing, just like on a personal level. And to feel, because of this work, not ashamed of those feelings. Because of course, like I would naturally assume that I'm the bad guy. It's all my fault. I take it on. That's just who I am. So to be in a, in a community of people who have enough language to say, nope, it is what it is. Your feelings are your feelings. And let's help work it out from here. And hey, you might want to see this kind of person to talk about this kind of thing and to the certain specialized knowledge. Um, I probably, I, I mean, this sounds hyperbolic and it is slightly hyperbolic because I am not, um, I do not have suicidal ideation, but I don't think I would have survived last year as well as I did had I not had individuals who had a trauma background and knowledge to be able to talk to me. Because I'm still living through this trauma response and I'm not, I'm not out of it. I don't, this is not in my rear view in any means. And this is both personally and professionally I'm, I'm in a trauma response. Um, so to be able to tell people, hey, this is what's happening and to have them be able to receive it in a loving, gentle, kind, compassionate way uh, is, is absolutely huge and crucial. And I'm so grateful for that. I was like, this is so sweet. Just, <laughs> well, I mean, that's not, and you're a huge part of that, Jim. Like, I, I, if I didn't have your friendship, I would have been lost. And I am so grateful for you to have the platform that you do and to be able to reach out to people the way you are and to be able to normalize talk, talking about this stuff. Because I had a ton of shame around this stuff. Um, and you're just, your facility with being able to talk about it has really, it's really changed my ability to have really challenging conversations with myself about myself. So I appreciate you. Are you trying to be the second person to make me cry on Trauma Queen? Is that what? Oh, I mean, like I can, I can keep pushing it. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I love making people cry. You know what? That's a whole nother situation. We're not doing that right now on this podcast. Wow. People are trying to learn too much about us right now. Um, <laughs> Um, well, this has been great. I'm, I'm very thankful. Before you go, though, two things. Um, for those that are intrigued in this field, if you could give them like a little bit, like two things of advice, two things of advice and two things how to survive, what would you say? Mm. Things. So like thriving, surviving kind of thing. Um, yep. I'm here for it. I would say develop some really concrete skills. Um, learn to balance your books. Uh, learn public speaking. Learn uh, web development. I mean, all the things that you can learn how to do on your own. Like, as an entrepreneur in any field, that stuff becomes worth its weight in gold. One of the way, one of the side hustles I was able to do to support myself through some really lean months was helping people lay out their books because I self-published my first two novels and I learned typesetting. So I was able to hang a shingle of, you want me to typeset your book? I can do that for a fee. And so that was huge. Just be able to, again, like get me through these lean times. Um, a little bit more esoteric, please stop considering your peers as competitors. Please start seeing them as collaborators. Even if you are in the exact same thing, even if you and three other people pride themselves on being blowjob queens. That's your thing. You're the blowjob queen of wherever you are. And there are other blowjob queens who have the same exact corner of the market. Please don't consider them competition. 
because mm-hmm. we all have our different skills and strengths. And one of the things that we learn that I learned as I did this is that a lot of it's about personality. The way I teach is not the way my partner Reed teaches, is not the way Sex Nurse Sandra teaches, is not the way Jiminika teaches, is not the way Dirty Lola teaches. People will find us attractive and educational for their own reasons. And it's important to understand that just being yourself is often a great asset. And there are going to be people who relate to you just because of the way you articulate certain things. I know that I am not for everyone. I know that a lot of people do not like the words that I use or the the way that I say things or the way that I laugh, right? And then they are welcome to go to a different workshop because there are so many other people who do this work. But the people who resonate with me are the ones that become the super fans. They're the ones who read every book that I write and who come to my workshops. And those are the super fans. Those are the people that you want to keep on delivering good stuff to. Um, for survival means, I would recommend strongly taking care of your own shit. Please do not use the sex education field as a way to work your stuff out. Uh, I see that all the time, and I see that happening where people are taking each other out. I see people at conferences who are... who clearly do not have their own emotional life handled. And that often comes into a competition place, but it also means that a lot of people are the crabs in the barrel. They're Mm. they're grabbing at people who are just trying to to survive in this Mm -hmm. industry. We're all just trying to survive in this industry. Literally. And that's what I, it's (laughs) it's truly, that's it. That's it. Um, So I think that survival is important. And then again, like, don't be afraid to diversify. Own your own stuff. Write books. Uh, do make podcasts. Make things that can be shared, and and own them to the degree that you can. Um, for me, the reason why I'm able to survive is that I self-published Girl Sex 101. It's a very expensive, very big, very pretty book, and so I fundraised through Kickstarter and I self-published, which means I make way more per sale than I would if I traditionally published. That might not be the right path for everybody if they write books, but for me, that was huge in helping me survive through from until the next big gig, right? And so to the degree that you can, own your stuff. Um, Credit people when they've given you stuff. Um, Again, treat people as as companions on this path, not as competition. Um, But try and make things that you can spread and and that are filled with good information and that are peer-reviewed to the degree you can. Um, and I think that will really help people survive in sex education. Well, thank you for, for giving us some of those little gems. Um, <laughs> I have enjoyed this conversation and the peaks of little pettiness is what I look for. <laughs> I have so much more. I, so I know, more. I know, I know you are holding it in, but I will allow this <laughs> and I support you in this journey. But, <laughs> um, I'm very thankful that you had time to spend time with me, which, you know, I get it. I love spending time with you as well. Um, but um, before I let you go, plug yourself. Tell it. Tell us how we can give you coins, where we can find you. What are you working on? Oh, heck yeah. Well, I have a new <laughs> book coming out. It's coming out in fall of 2020. So it's a little ways off yet. But I'm writing it as we speak. It's called Getting It, How to Hook Up Without Fucking Up. So that'll be a book That's for all cute. genders, all sexualities about how to have casual sex without ruining anyone's life. 
That's which so is yeah, in it, in it. Um, so that'll be fun. It'll be in very much the same voice as Girl Sex One Hundred One. Um, if you're not familiar with Girl Sex One Hundred One, please check it out. You can go to girlsex101.com. And if you buy it from my website, I will send you a signed copy, which is fancy. But you can also buy it from your local bookseller or your local sex toy store or anywhere that fine books are sold. Um, <laughs> you can also listen to me. I have a podcast called Artgasm, which is all about the intersections of sex and art. I'm on a little bit of a hiatus right now. I will probably be picking it up in the late summer of 2019. But until then, I've got 30 episodes that you can listen to, including a, one with Jiminika and one with uh, Dirty Lola, who was also a guest on your podcast. Um, yes. And so, and probably some other future guests that will have crossed over from various podcasts. So you can find that at artgasmcast.com. And if you like it a lot, you can go to my Patreon, which is all Artgasm related, which is patreon.com slash artgasm. Yay. Well, I'm so glad <laughs> to have had you. And I'm going to stop this so I can continue talking to you briefly. Um, <laughs> thank you all for listening. The first resource is Allison's book. Girl Sex 101 by Allison Moon. Girl Sex 101 is a sex ed book like no other, offering helpful info for ladies and lady lovers of all genders and identities, playful and informative illustrations on each page, and over a hundred distinctive voices, plus a hot narrative that shows you how to put that info to good use. Next up, YouTube.com Stevie. We got Stevie Bobby. Stevie's a lesbian sex educator who makes really easy to understand instructional sex education videos. She literally has a video teaching people how to finger someone. She also talks about relationships and dating. And our third resource on this episode is Planned Parenthood, where you can find them at PlannedParenthood.org. Planned Parenthood Education Department provides a robust range of programming options. They also make it... So they have trainings available in your area. So go ahead and check it out and you can utilize it also as a local resource. And a resource I'm going to talk about every episode is our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a platform that connects you with a personal online therapist. They have hundreds of licensed therapists you can connect with within 24 hours. Cognitive therapy has been proven to be the leading, most effective treatment for PTSD, anxiety, and childhood trauma. I always, of course, recommend first seeking an in-person therapist, especially in crisis situations. But online therapy is also a fantastic option, especially if you live in an area where you don't have access to a therapist with the Black experience, the queer experience, or they're just downright too pricey. With BetterHelp, you can filter to find exactly what kind of therapist you'd like. And if it doesn't feel right with that person, you can be matched with a brand new counselor within 24 hours. You can video chat, talk on the phone, do in-app messaging, and it's available on desktop or mobile. Go to betterhelp.com backslash queen to find your personal counselor for as low as $35 a week. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com backslash Q-U-E-E-N. Thank you so much for listening. This season has been so special to record. And of course, I have to give a shout out to all the people who made this possible. You can find us all on Instagram. Podcast artwork by Zoe Loves, Z-O-I-E-L-O-V-E-S. Produced by Boy God King, B-O-Y-G-O-D-K-I-N-G. And me, I'm your host, Jiminika. That's J-I-M-A-N-E-K-I-N-G. I A.